This is The Bayes Factor, a podcast about Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this episode, JP and Alex catch up with each other, and they talk about how they like podcasting so far, Alex's experience doing a joint MS-PhD in stats and cogsci, and their future plans for the podcast. Very silly. Can you hear me? So hello, hello. Do you hear me? Hello, hello. Yes, now I can hear you. Hello, hello. So this is the fun part. So we can hear each other, but we can't, uh, and ourselves actually, but we can't, uh, we have no crosstalk on the recording. Hmm. <laughs> this is weird. I never was a victim of my own lab, and now I realize <laughs> how weird it is. It feels somewhat bizarre. <laughs> Especially the closeness of the sound. I know, it's right on my ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you're whispering, but at a full volume. <laughs> <laughs> How poetic. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's me. So uh, I guess Saul's already recording. That's 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 the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Uh, if you promise me that anything weird we say, you edit out, then we can just have an unscripted interview with each other. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's video too. Right? Oh, hello. <laughs> Okay, so uh, you have most of the agenda there, you sneaky laptop user. I do. So uh, let's first uh, put this in the context. So this is uh, the Bayesian, the Bayes Factor podcast. Yeah. And we're in the high lab at Tufts, which has... Your lab. My lab, which has the peculiar uh, arrangement that we are now facing each other. And it's like we are on the same table, like in a bar. It's very weird. And we can hear each other perfectly, maybe too perfectly. Yeah. But we're actually in different rooms acoustically. So Symmetrical you, rooms. Symmetrical rooms, very Mirror symmetrical. Rooms. And uh, what you say is going to record on one track, and what I say is going to record on the other track, which makes it easier to transcribe and analyze, and that's the point of this lab. Uh, but we'll also make the editing easier. Yeah. And... Uh, so uh, that's the setup here, which is very different from what we used to do when we do interviews. Yeah, where normally we're just like this, but in a less creepy room and without plexiglass in between us. It's not creepy. Well, you don't say that because now you'll never get participants <laughs> anymore if they hear this. Well, do you want me to say it's not creepy or do you want me to... Yes, I want you to say it's Tell the creepy. truth. <laughs> No, I want you to say it's not creepy. <laughs> okay, I'll under duress, <coughs> I'll say it's not creepy. <laughs> Why is it creepy? It feels like I'm in a horror movie almost. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a in a horror movie, um, like for people who don't like horror movies. So it's not so scary, but it's more like bizarre, like I'm in a bizarro world. You know how I feel if I <laughs> in this uh, situation? Yeah. I feel like I'm Skyping in a sort of future universe where Skype yeah. actually works. Yeah. You it know, does that feel the sound like that. quality is good and we can see each other for real and yeah. and there's no delays and so this is like how I imagine Skyping in a Star Trek scenario. Yeah. That's, uh, if only. 
If only. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let me let me just start off by uh, so by asking you a few random questions. Okay. So what do you think of podcasting now? I like it. Yeah. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it's more fun than I thought. Yeah. When we started, I had the feeling that I was really unsure if it would be worth it, putting mm-hmm. in the effort and the time and. Mm-hmm. But it's been very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, and very, I don't know, sort of, I don't know, just sort of getting to talk to people and sort of probe them with interesting questions and see what they say and try to, I don't know, just get to know them more and get behind the persona that we give when we write papers that right. like, oh, I'm super smart and I have this to say and you should take me seriously. And then we get them on an interview and it's very sort of almost silly, some of them. Some of them are really silly. Yeah, yeah. and I like that. Yeah. I like that. It's, it's uh, um, it makes it more real, more natural, more yeah. down to earth. The personality kind of comes through. Yes, yes. Some silliness is needed. It's like simulated kneeling. If you don't shake it a little bit, you don't <laughs> find the local maximum, the, the, the global maximum of silliness, of, uh, of, of reality. That's a very nerdy joke or yeah, analogy. It's actually not a joke, but an analogy, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, no, I, I enjoyed it. and uh, So I, I enjoyed interviewing people, especially together. It's much more fun together than alone, I think. Mm, I don't yeah. know what your experience. You did both. Yeah, I think it's much harder to do it alone because hmm. there's no one to sort of monitor indi- yeah and independently bounce an idea off of somebody right whereas when there are both of us we can almost take turns yeah. leading the discussion yeah one can uh, can can be con- conversing and the other can already sneakily think of the next topic that yeah. could be brought up yeah yeah it's a real good vis- distribution distribution of labor yeah, and I think we as a pair are sort of the good cop, bad cop, except oh. more like... Who's the good cop? More like silly cop, <laughs> keep us on track cop. <laughs> silly cop, serious cop. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good interview style. Yeah. It works. Yeah, we should keep doing that. Yeah. Um. But I think it's fun, and I I think that in the sphere of podcasts that exist... Ours is somewhat different or in that it's never just us talking. It's always an interview or a Rare, new guest. Almost always because the first one and this one are exceptions. That's a good point. But yeah, no, in general, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Right, yes, no. Yes, uh, the format is always somewhat different. Right. No, that's true. It keeps it fresh. Right, and also what I think uh, I think we can be s- slightly proud of is that so far we've managed to get a good sound quality. Yeah. And that's very pleasant. If I listen back to them, I'm like, oh, it sounds like hi-fi. Yeah, and it's uh, almost uh, it's hard easy to, to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to realize, and and if we go ever to to doing remote interviews, we'll have uh, more pr- more problems doing that unless we do clever things with recording it hi-fi on both ends and then combining it later yeah but it's kind of pleasant to listen to it's easier to listen to long podcasts if they're have good quality yeah of course this is a bit weird with the absorbent rooms it will be very dry but it doesn't have the acoustics of a cozy no. hotel room like the one in florida no no yeah. uh but 
it's nice to have it sort of, I don't know, almost like you, we're talking in your in your ear. Yeah, yeah, that's something that's hard to avoid in this setup. Yeah, yeah. with headphones and microphones. So, yeah. Yeah. Normally, we just have to hope that the sound quality is, uh, or the sound levels basically are correct. But yeah. here you have immediate feedback that. Right, and also we have Sol in the control room who makes sure that <laughs> I hope the sound I'd levels are correct. You still there, Sol? Yeah, Sol's still there. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, we can't see him because there's one-way mirror, so even if oh, he would good. wave a gesture, we couldn't see him. <laughs> Uh, but he's recording this relentlessly on video, so maybe we should add a still if we if we publish this one, so people see how ridiculous it actually is. I know. Yeah. Whereas you put it creepy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk some business. So uh, I heard that you actually, as of a warm-up exercise for your PhD at Irvine, you are doing a MSc in statistics. Yes. How's that? It's very challenging. Mm. Uh, but very rewarding. So the format of my PhD is that the official program that I'm doing is joint between the statistics and the cognitive science mm. departments. So it's... You called me a geek a minute ago? <laughs> I guess people in glass houses uh, and all that. But no, so the first year you do split time between the two... Uh, sets of courses. So you take a couple of cognitive science courses and a couple of stat courses. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is in the second year, you essentially leave cognitive science and enter statistics. Okay. So you attend their seminar series, their colloquium, their, you take all their classes, and you don't have any sort of obligations to cognitive science anymore for that year. Hmm. Formally, it's like that year doesn't exist to the cognitive science department. So uh -huh. when I go back from my third year, this it's actually fall, your second year. It's officially my second year uh, in CogSci. So I'm doing my second year exam when I get back. I wish they could do that with my bridge professorship. You know that I'm just <laughs> non-existent for one year in one department, and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> save yourself some workload. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so you're uh, you're about to finish your MSc? Yeah. So I finished all the stack courses that are required. So the format is that you take some courses in both departments, and some count for doubly. Oh, essentially. Okay. So if, yeah. if I take Michael Lee's course on Bayesian modeling, that counts as an elective in the stat department as well for okay. the masters. Okay. So I have one more elective to take, quote right. unquote, in the CogSci department, and oh, then yeah. it's completed. The so at the end of what the, is then completed? The masters okay. is completed. So I will be awarded that degree at the end of fall quarter, basically. Oh, okay. So I have to do the paperwork. But yeah. That's always so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what is it that you learned by doing a master's in statistics that that you thought, oh, if I had been a, how do you say this nicely, enthusiastic user of statistics with lots of self-study that you wouldn't know? So mm. what is the extra stuff here that yeah. all us uh, statistic local hero cowboys <laughs> uh, don't get? because we don't do a master's in statistics. Yeah, so I'll speak for myself in that before I took this, I was mainly self-taught in mm -hmm. this, in the theory and in the practice of mm -hmm. statistics. Mm -hmm. And 
the difference now is, well, number one, I feel much more confident that if I have a problem that comes up, an applied statistical problem or an applied sort of theoretical mm -hmm. derivation I need to do, I have the confidence to go in and do it mm -hmm. and just sort of jump in. Right. Um, so recently I've been looking into uh, a certain Bayesian application that involves the Kullback-Leibler divergence. And I had to sort of look it up just on my own. And there weren't really any good uh, beginner level tutorials about it. Like how's, here's how you can derive mm -hmm. Kullback-Leibler divergence for these two distributions. So I spent a long time Googling and realized that nothing's out there. And I said, well, I'll just derive some myself and see. Well, that must be a very powerful sensation. It felt very uh, rewarding mm -hmm. to be able to just say, well, I know what the result should be. I should be able to now derive it. And oh, well, that helps if you know what, re what the result yeah, should be. But yeah, but some of them don't have what the result should be. Uh, so, for example, you can find a list of them yeah. uh, that has, like, you know, a Goldberg-Leibler divergence between two normal distributions right. or between two gamma distributions. Right. But they don't have one, for example, for the geometric distribution oh, on the yeah. list. Okay. So if you want to use that, you have to derive it because I couldn't find it anywhere. Right. Uh, and how are you sure you got the correct one? I check my steps very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Simulation? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could. No, yeah. I mean, in that case, the math was actually very straightforward. Okay. Um, you just get it down to a, a certain algebraic manipulation and then take an expectation, and it becomes very, actually, pretty easy. Hmm. But getting there, you have to sort of know how to get there. Yeah. Um, so things like this yeah. where something I need to know, I can just sort of figure it out now. Right. Um, Another real benefit, I think, to me, is that you have a lot more feeling of what is a rigorous demonstration of a result. Mm -hmm. So in the classes you take, you're told that, you know, this way to estimate a parameter is good because mm -hmm. it has the smallest possible standard error, for example. Mm. And you then go on to prove it, uh -huh. right? And you're asked to do this, and you're given, for example, a way to estimate something else mm -hmm. and to show that it doesn't achieve the lowest possible standard error and to prove it, mm -hmm. right? And this is something that I didn't have in my skill set no. and not something that I really see that often in some of the more psychological methods yeah. Uh, development. One, number one, because a lot of the applications are really difficult to, in principle, provide yeah. a proof that it would work, right? right. The, right. the mathematic is just too complicated. Yeah. Or, yeah, so uh, an appreciation for this, at least, yeah. uh, I think is yeah, valuable cool. because yeah. a lot of times someone will develop a new method and they just say, well, here's my intuitive sort of way I would go about it, and here's some mm -hmm. uh, clever derivation that uh, this is my estimator, and then you would say, now I'll show that it works through a simulation study. Yeah. But they sort of skip the step that says that in principle, with a lot of data, for example, it could it could possibly work. Yeah. So that we are left with maybe just wondering, 
in another situation with a different simulation, would it still work? Like, where does it generalize to? Yeah. We don't necessarily have the theoretical results to back it up, so mm. we're sort of not sure. And we have to do a new simulation study for mm. a new scenario, for yeah, example. Yeah, I see. So how did studying statistics uh, change your, if at all, about your mind about the Bayesian frequentist debate? Mm. It changed my perspective somehow. Mm. Um, so I still identify the Bayesian formulation as more reasonable between mm -hmm. the two. Um, Obviously. <laughs> well, uh, but... <laughs> I have appreciated a lot of the very clever uh, theoretical development that goes into the frequentist uh, framework. Mm -hmm. So they, it really is like almost like an art form, some of the things that are shown with this. So the Neyman Pearson result that mm -hmm. um, shows that if you want to do a test, the best tests are always based on the likelihood ratio. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly, I don't know, it's almost like beautiful the way mm -hmm. that they can show that this is true, mm -hmm. right? And when it's explained to you in a simple way, you also immediately see that it's true, mm. right? Um, there's all these theories about why maximum likelihood estimates are the best estimates or uh, in, in the frequentist yeah. framework. Maximum. Um, in the sense that they'll have the smallest standard errors usually, mm. right, mm -hmm. in the large sample limit. Um, so there's just a lot of very beautiful math that goes behind it. Um, did you have similar, did you discover similar things in the Bayesian world? Well, the Bayesian world is, it, it's very self-contained mm -hmm. almost, right? Like you want to say, how should I, you know, what should I think about this parameter? Well, I construct the model, and voila, I have a posterior distribution, mm -hmm. right? And there's nothing really else to say about it. Mm. You can summarize the posterior distribution with its mean or its median or its spread. Or it doesn't that have a certain elegance? No, it does, yeah. Mm. Um, but it's it's all sort of from the, from the beginning, you're given Bayes' theorem and you follow it through to the end. And it is elegant. But there's not, you don't have to be clever. It's more boring. You yeah, saying. yes. Yeah. Um, which is fine, yeah. right? Uh, but yeah. there's just something to be said for clever mathematical yeah. proofs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, that are just appealing, right? right. Um, but also I gained an appreciation that uh, frequentist methods can do things in some cases that a Bayesian method can't do. Mm -hmm. Such as? So there are these uh, robustness results for certain Bayesian estimators, for example, that a Bayesian can't reproduce. Mm. So if you have, for example, you're doing a regression and you want to estimate a parameter beta, right? You have an intercept and a regression weight, basically. Um, you can get the same estimates all the time with the ordinary least squares, for example, um, but if your data aren't normally distributed, then assuming that they are, you're going to have standard errors that are incorrect. So you'll have confidence intervals that don't have the proper coverage, for example. Um, and there's a way called the Huber-White method to just sort of patch it up and to find the approximately correct standard errors wow. just by 
making non-parametric assumptions about the data. You just mm. um, you just sort of look at it and plug it in to their mm. formula. It's called the sandwich estimator. Um, so yeah, I mean that's something that a Bayesian can't do, for example. Okay. So if you're wrong about your model, you can still sort of recover. Yeah. Whereas a Bayesian is really dependent on getting the model right. Yeah. Right. We really just look at the posterior distribution. We don't really do ad hoc corrections to it. Mm -hmm. uh, that would not be kosher. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're really worried that your model is wrong, mm. a frequentist might be in a better position to be less wrong about their inference. I mean, they still have the problem that the inferences are strictly about long run mm. Frequencies of capturing parameters in an interval, for example. It sounds like you're saying that uh, frequencies have better quality duct tape. <laughs> yeah, I guess they d that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, if a Bayesian has misspecified the model, they're kind of stuck with it. Yeah, but a frequentist can sort of <laughs> get yeah. out of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tape. yeah with some tape. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> that's it, good. So, well, for example, in my uh, second regression course in this in the three-part series that we had to take. My final project, I did a frequentist analysis of uh, you're given a data analysis project and you're said to specify a model and draw mm -hmm. inferences about the scientific question of interest. And it was easiest to just do the frequentist model with this Huber-White uh, standard error corrections mm. than to put in all the work to get the correct, correct quote-unquote, Bayesian model mm. for the data. So if you're sort of feeling... Oh, now it's going to sound bad, but if you're kind of lazy, mm -hmm. you can be, you can still get by with sort of correcting this. But of course, nothing comes for free, so there are caveats to this. But just, well, I think that's it's cool. a common theme that like uh, only the fact that you can only do Bayesian analysis now they have basically supercomputing powers, <laughs> yeah, uh, so shows that there is like a trade-off there. Yeah, uh, you're more principled in some ways, but you need a lot more work to do and numer and numerical work, especially, to get at at the right conclusion. So yeah. so there is a trade-off there, and it's like it's not the first time I heard that people say that some things are easier to do in frequentism. Yeah. So. Yeah. That that, that makes sense. Uh, that's a very good argument. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I'll ask you something, JP. Okay. So. Recently, I saw that you have published a paper where you uh, respond to this debate about the P less than 0 0.005 debate. Ah, the 005 The debate. 005, agent yeah. 005. Yes, um, yes, it didn't let me go. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, and you essentially, I don't know if rebut is the right word, but you write a response to the justify your alpha paper and... Yes try to assess their arguments against the 005 proposal. Is yeah. that a fair? That's, that's yeah, maybe we should re recap that. So there's a, there's a proposal by uh, a lot of authors, 70-something, 70 72 or something. I think so. Uh, who says, well, hey, guys, if you're going to use, if you're going to continue to use uh, null hypothesis testing, at least uh, make alpha 0.005 because the level of evidence that you reach in 0.05 is so low that there's no wonder that we get replication problems. Mm. And I read that, and as some of the, most of the authors, maybe I mean, at least some of the authors, 
I don't like the NHST framework, the null hypothesis testing framework, but yeah, I agreed. Like it sort of makes sense. Like if you if you do it that way, at least do it in such a way that you have evidence, minimally evidence, or that you yet you your maximum evidence can be high enough. I should okay. say. And I was very happy with that. Although I'm agreeing with some of the authors that it's not the ideal solution, but it's better than we had. And if you know how easy it is to get a 0.05, sorry, but it is really easy to get that, mm. as many people have shown in different ways. Like, yeah, well, that must contribute to false positives. So, so I was re- I'm sort of like impressed that these authors got together and, and wrote that. And uh, then there was the second paper uh, called Justify Your Alpha of more authors. Uh, mm-hmm. I just wondered. 80 something. 80 something. So. Uh, so they had even more authors than the first one, mm. uh, which argued like, well, no, 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 this is not the way to go. Uh, we uh, so basically it's not because of alpha that we have a replication problem, and uh, lowering alpha has all kinds of disadvantages, and therefore we shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And though that's a legitimate point of view, but when I read the paper, I was like, yeah, but the arguments against the redefined significance paper, the first one, just not valid arguments. Mm. So, and that's, it's out there and it's in nature and everybody will read the first one then read the second one and there's this recency effect like, oh yeah, see, it's not, it's, there's no point in doing that. So mm. I just, I felt a very strong need to discuss this. And I'm like, yeah, I can complain about it on Twitter, but that's not going to work. Uh, it would not be very effective. It's fun, but it's not effective. So right. I thought like, okay, let's just sit down and write a serious paper and just go through the arguments uh, one by one and just discuss them. And this is a good one, this is a bad one, and overall I think these arguments are not a good reason not to do what the original paper said. Okay. Could you give an example of one that you thought was particularly challenging toward the original paper? Challenging to well, not really. No, okay. uh, there was not one argument that I thought was convincing. Okay. Um, there was one that looked convincing at first sight, which I thought was the most dangerous argument, which is sort of saying, well, if we if we have like really difficult situations to get data, like we have uh, special populations, are hard to find, mm. extra work, you have to get permissions, IRBs are are, are, are a nightmare to get for a good reason. And uh, and then oh and there's not enough people of this population to reach the level of powers that we used to in say a psychophysics experiment, mm. then it's reasonable to lower your alpha. You mean uh, increase your alpha? Sorry, yes, increase your <laughs> alpha. Sorry, high to make alpha higher and and uh, sort of yeah, sorry, and then so you have higher alpha. So it's it sort of suggests that there's a kind of moral. Uh, uh, situation that it's it's if it's so hard for both the experimenter and the people who may be participants to get data, then it's only fair if we make the standard of evidence lower, which is what I meant with lower. Hmm. Uh, but that I think is a dangerous point because um, y- y- even no matter how hard it is to actually get the data, the evidence is still the evidence, no matter how you define it. If you 
uh, if you want to mm. define it as error rates on the long run, or if you if that's evidence, which I doubt, but if that's what your thing is, then that's what your thing is. And if you want to def define evidence as a likelihood ratio or a marginalized likelihood ratio, then mm -hmm. like in the base factor, then yes, uh, you can see that there's lower evidence, which is not a surprise. If you if you make alpha higher, you have less evidence. So. But that doesn't change because it was hard to get the data. Right. So it's almost yeah. like, does the universe owe you right. your answering your question? Yeah, if, yeah you work you so hard that you deserve to have to think that you have more evidence than you have. No, that's not how it works. It doesn't magically get higher if, if it's more blood, sweat, and tears to get the evidence. And because it's such a tempting argument, because people who do work, as I do sometimes do, where we're getting a high N is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. It might be very tempting for those people to say, yeah, see, we don't have to uh, lower alpha because uh, then I can't publish my results anymore. And that's exactly where we don't want to be in a replication crisis that we're in. So do you think that there's a possibility that the real problem with, with this is that somehow there's a publication barrier? So if yeah. you, you sort of are now saying... If we lower the alpha level to 005, it will be harder to publish the results. Mm -hmm. Sort of implicitly assuming that this is what's being considered for publication. Right. But what if we lived in a society where... But just for the record, uh, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. the redefined significance paper, the first one, didn't say don't publish. It said we just don't call it significant anymore. Okay. So you can still say, look, we found something interesting. There's some evidence for X or Y. Mm -hmm. It doesn't reach significance then. So maybe it shouldn't be put in the textbooks right away as a as a as a solid finding. We right. can look more at it. We'd have to do replications. We have to study this. You can still publish it, and therefore not having a higher publication bias, which was another argument mm. of the second paper. Uh, because we can still publish it. I mean, it's just like, and, but journals then have to also say, okay, come on, something uh, the p-value of 0.01 is worth publishing because we don't have to have this significance fetish. That's one of the points actually I agreed with hmm. the uh, second paper, where you say, okay, uh, we ha we don't have to get worked up about this uh, 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 threshold for significance. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, on the other hand. To have some criteria, what you call significant, what not, I think is practically useful. Mm -hmm. And if we move that to point to 005, uh, then things that are called significant end up being more replicable. That's just a theoretical result. Mm. Do so you do you buy the uh, authors of a different proposal's point when they? So there was another paper that responded to this, that was uh, called "Abandon Statistical Significance." Uh, I think that was also in the paper. But it was also in, I think it was uh, Andrew Gelman and oh, yeah, that Jennifer one. Tackett. I can't remember the rest of the authors. Yeah. Um, well. I guess you would, uh, in principle, agree that. It depends a little bit on the alternative, I think. Mm. Uh, I, need, uh, I need to see another way. I, I, I do, and I know that many people disagree, and many of the people we interviewed disagree with me there. But I do think it is reasonable and unavoidable to have some kind of rule of thumb for what you consider to be this is now taken seriously in the literature and this is not yet and mm -hmm. this is not at all uh, 
there has to, I think that is reasonable because if we're going to have a discussion about every about this with every paper, I think it's going to be very very messy and detrimental to publishing. Mm. I in my ideal world everything is published and there is a level of evidence that is attributed to the study. And some some of that evidence is high and some of that is low. And as we know from previous interviews and lots of background uh, literature, the p-value itself is not going to give you a good measure of evidence. Right. You can't use it to compare between studies, for instance. Uh, so we might want to use another level of evidence. And uh, well, you can use a likelihood ratio, you can use a base factor. But you have to have some kind of criteria like this we take seriously as things that we now sort of believe mm. though we can still change our belief mm. and this is what we not yet believe i think that's reasonable they have that in physics as well every field has their sort of standards and i think these standards are unavoidable even though i realize that many people that's kind of easy to shoot holes at but what if it's on the border yeah i know but you know it's uh yeah not perfect but it's a heuristic yeah like in the in the dutch army when i was enlisting and there was a limit you couldn't be over two meters Really? Because yeah, because then enough your clothes don't fit. You don't fit in the beds. The, yeah, so and oh. stewardesses had a uh, the, the flight attendants, but then they were called stewardesses in the old days. That had a, a maximum height. You couldn't be taller oh. than something because otherwise you don't you hit your head all the time. Oh yeah. And there are these, and of course there could be a perfect soldier or flight attendant over the maximum height, but you have to accept a certain loss there. Hmm. How was your experience trying to get this? published because it didn't you didn't publish it in the same journal no as the originals i uh i like uh, uh psychological bulletin and review very much because it does a lot of discussion and i and mm. i also i was a single author and not an 80 something author's the paper which makes it easier to write at least presumably yeah because i noticed that a lot of the uh, authors especially the second paper told me in different media that they had divergent opinions from the original paper they published. Oh. So there was a wide variety, diversity of opinions within the authorship of the second paper. I mean, it's not a surprise when you think no. about it. No. I mean, it's hard to get four authors to yeah. agree sometimes. Yeah. Especially oh. about statistics. Yeah. So, so it was impressive that they found 80, 88 or something authors that... Uh, that put their name on it, but it's not a surprise that they might not have agreed on everything. Yeah. yeah. But that, so that made it a little bit harder because the, some of the reviewers were authors. And uh, and then uh, I had to focus on what is in the paper because there's so many arguments that I can only address a few of them. So I thought I decided to limit myself to what is actually written down mm. in the paper and not take into account other arguments, other papers, just focus on this one. Yeah, and so it was. It was. Uh, oh, it was a tough review, but in the end, I think we reached a, a satisfactory agreement between the reviewers, editor, and author. So that's why it's now going to be published. And I'm very happy with it because uh, I think it is a small contribution to the discussion. Yeah, and uh, have you published a single author paper before? Not often. Uh, well, my dissertation was obviously single authored. Right. And there's, there's, there's uh, actually I have in gesture. I usually am sing often are single author. In other mm. fields, like turn taking or communication, I usually do multi author. It's much more fun actually. Multi author. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's really it's fun, fun to fun. collaborate. It's fun to collaborate. It also probably makes the paper better if I have other authors who tell me, no, 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 JP, that's not a good idea, or could you rephrase that? Mm. Or, uh, or, or just adding perspectives is always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I find collaborating is really a nice way to uh, see things from another angle because right. I really tend to come at things from a very sort of formal, uh, at least doing like a data analysis where you're saying, you know, we really should fit a model that looks like this and like this. And people go, yeah, but we can't measure that. Right. Right. We, I can't observe that no. or I can't collect that covariate. Right. And you're like, oh, well, mm-hmm. all right, now I have to be more practical. Right. Uh, no, that's a very good point. Yeah. That's uh, you better have that before you get the reviewers to that with your call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. I'm I'm glad it's coming out. And uh, yeah, uh, it was hard, but a lot of work. But uh, yeah. And uh, um, I heard that you were you were at uh, uh, Jan Wagenmaker's lab for a few months, right? Yeah. Just this summer. Yeah, so um, just to start off with a silly question about that, uh, do you now eat more mayonnaise? Yes, <laughs> I do. Remember that scene from Pulp Fiction, right, where they express surprise, two of the gangsters express surprise that in Amsterdam they put mayonnaise on their fries. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, and I think that ketchup. I think that movie came out like when I was born. Yes, but you could still have seen I it. I have seen it, yeah. yeah. But so that, and that's actually when I learned that there are countries where putting mayonnaise on your fries is not a normal thing to do. Uh-huh. And I, so I started wondering, what do Americans put on their fries? And found out it's ketchup. Yes. Which is weird for me. For a Dutch person. Well, maybe there are Dutch persons do ketchup on there, but most people would think the default, I think, is mayonnaise. Yeah. No, yeah, that's mostly what I've adopted as my mayonnaise consumption actually i've always thought as a growing up in for the part i grew up in the netherlands that the reason that the french fries exist is to shovel mayonnaise (laughs) into your head it's just a vessel for the mayonnaise yeah it looks so stupid if you just take a spoon you Mm -hmm. know so you have some some kind of excuse to put the mayonnaise in your mouth and then the (laughs) fries are just the excuse to move it into your mouth so that's how natural it is for Mm -hmm. me and then so, so you ate my mayonnaise now, and uh, I'm sure you didn't only <laughs> eat mayonnaise there. No, uh, I'm sure you were very productive uh, in the in the high-powered Wagenmakers uh, lab. I tried to be. Yeah, I tried to get some work done in between uh, the mayonnaise. And uh, what what is a highlight of things you did there? Uh, you tell us. Yeah. So the first thing that I did when I got there was work on a project that EJ and I had. Uh, agreed we would do the first time I went there, which was in <laughs> 2015. Okay. Uh, we sort of finished the initial thing we were going to work on back then, yeah. which was about sort of the history of the base factor right. in a different context. Great paper. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, and we decided that uh, a collaboration he had started with uh, Richard Mori and Wolf and Paimel and uh, Wolf's student, Annalise Bartlema, um, they had collected a survey of different researchers and students' intuitions about statistical evidence. Wow. And the, That's amazing. Well, yes, and Annalise, who was really the uh, student leading the project, got a job 
doing something else, and sort of no one was there to work on this anymore. Mm. So they had this very cool data set mm. sitting around. Someone needed to do something with it and write up a paper about it. Uh, so that's what I I'm so fascinated. What, can you give us a sneak preview of the results, or is that not, sure. uh, not allowed? No, no, it is. Uh, so were there, for instance, people who say, I don't do evidence? Well, the situation was as follows. So we gave them a survey. Well, this was before me. They gave them a survey. Yeah. Um, either faculty at the University of Amsterdam or the University of Leuven or students at both universities. Mm -hmm. And also, they posted on Andrew Gelman's blog mm. and asked for his readership to answer. Okay. So here's the situation. You're given a series of scenarios where you are tasked with making an inference about something and you are asked how much evidence would you need to make this inference. So as a calibration question, you're Expressed asked Expressed how. So you are asked there are is the possibility that um so the calibration question goes like this. Professor so-and-so is uh, collecting some data, and he has two theories, the ABC theory and the XYZ theory. And the data that come out are uh, just as probable under the ABC theory as under the XYZ theory. So they both predict the, the data exactly the same. And the question is, how much evidence do you have between the two theories? Mm -hmm. And you should say equivocal evidence because there's no reason to think one or the other just from the data alone, right? So uh, they're all framed in this sort of way where one th account gives a certain amount of probability to the uh, outcome and another account gives... So it was based on the likelihood principle. Essentially, yeah. It, the question is uh, when you have two competing accounts, mm. Uh, you look at how probable the data is, and you say, whichever one said the data are more likely, you should intuitively think the data support that mm -hmm. account. So one of the examples is a judge in a murder trial. Uh, there are two key suspects, and they do a DNA analysis, and the data are, you know, X times more probable if it was John than if it was Larry. So the question is, when you go to make the judgment, what does X need to be in order for you to judge that it was John and not Larry, right? It's a very artificial example because there are only two people and that's not how courts work, no. right? Obviously. Right. Um, but it's just to get a sort of feeling mm -hmm. like, does this need to be 10 times more consistent with John than with Larry? Does it need to be a hundred times? Like, well, how big does this need to be? And do people have any intuition for what this number actually means? Mm -hmm. So there are other questions that are lower key. So one is about you uh, are observing this uh, family and there are two kids and the mother bakes a pie and she tells the kids not to eat it until it's cool. And then one of the kids takes a big bite out of the pie. And the Great. mother <laughs> is a forensic statistician uh -oh. and compares the bite marks on the pie <laughs> to her children's <laughs> dental records. <laughs> I know. Uh, and so... You, CSI Wagenmakers Lab. Yeah. <laughs> <something>. <laughs> yeah. So you ask, how much more probable do the bite marks need to be 
under kid A than kid B in order to reward the one who waited with an extra piece of pie. Very low stakes, mm. right? Um, but the actual answers people give were very interesting. So some people would say something like, you know, I would use a level that it's like, it needs to be two times more likely uh, under this hypothesis than the other hypothesis to, to say that one of the kids, you know, to reward the other kid, basically. Mm. Um, so you might have a level of two, right, two to one. Um, there was another example sort of in the middle about a scientific hypothesis and whether you should publish with a very grandiose title mm. or with a more modest title, mm. right? And so to, to use the grandiose title, how much evidence do you need in favor of the hypothesis, right? Uh, that one is sort of, you know, some people might say 10 or 15 or mm. 5, right? There's no right answer. Uh, and then maybe for the judgeship, they might say 100 or 1,000 or... Right. One person entered one with 79 zeros afterwards. So you don't know if that guy's just taking the piss or yeah. a serious. I mean, 79, not 89. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Mm. But uh, so the question is like, what do people give for these numbers? Because this is essentially the scale that you're working on when you use a base factor, yeah, right? Exactly. So it turns out that we also had a free response. Uh, category and a lot of people responded by saying like man I have really no intuition for how to pick these numbers mm. so some people said two four six for the three scenarios and some people said three thirty and three hundred or they said one two three and there was really just no feeling like a gut feeling like what is a strong amount mm. so you had this wouldn't it be fun to do this study again, but then not with evidence, but with error rates? Yeah. I See how, how, how people, <laughs> what kind of error rates people want to have? Well, some one of the comments I thought was pretty illuminating was it said, I found this very difficult without having the p-values and the confidence intervals next to it. So, yeah. well, that was I think that question. guy kind of missed the point, <laughs> yeah. um, but but there was a lot of individual variability yeah. in what people required. Some people actually said that they required more evidence for the scientific theory publication mm -hmm. uh, than for the judgment in the court, um, which there's nothing inherently incorrect about this, no, right? No, I mean, no, we can have prejudice. we can have more standards of evidence. We could think science is the holy grail and we shouldn't taint it with overly bold claims but i don't value human life very much or something so he should go to jail for 20 years that's not that severe or something right i don't know um there were some people you know you could also think i value being fair with my kids more than i value scientific yeah, no, rigor right no, so it's just a preference yeah so it was just interesting to see that that lots of people give different numbers a lot of people said explicitly I have no idea how to do this. And it really just goes to show, I think, that a lot of researchers really aren't trained mm. to interpret these sort of ratio evidence numbers, like a Bayes factor. Oh. It's not in the classes, and they don't have much practice with oh. it. So, That's amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's really it, interesting. It's, it sort of goes to, toward the argument that people often make, Bayesians, that, mm. well, the Bayesian inference is so much more intuitive than the frequentist inference. Mm. Um, but for these people, it didn't seem to be very intuitive at all. No. Um, 
so it's it's maybe more intuitive for us once we've got a good understanding of it and we've been trained and we've had a lot of education but what i think might be the most intuitive one is the wrong interpretation of frequentism as the probability of being wrong yeah i think that would be the p value one. yeah well if well, you interpret the p value as wrongly as the probability of being wrong then i think people will have strong intuitions well there was a survey about this uh -huh. about giving people a, a t-test and its p-value and asking them which inferences follow from it mm -hmm. yes i know that study right. yes and they usually um, usually said at least a couple things wrong yeah right uh, uh, and some very and and even if you, if you actually i i gave a talk once about this paper mm. and there were some angry accomplished scientists and and they claimed in in the talk that these were right right so uh, there you go. And, like, and there was even a student who said to me once when I published this paper, well, if all these people said that that's correct, who do you think, who, who do you, think you are to say that they're wrong? Yeah, as, as know, if... I, I was voted out by as these as people. As if it's a democratic choice. Yeah. 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 So that, there is a lot of confusion. But I think but that might be a simple probability that you want to minimize, namely the probability of being wrong might be the one that is more consistent uh, yeah. for people than the one that you... Well, actually, interesting to know that the, that the Bayesian uh, interpretation is not as intuitive as we thought. Yeah, I mean, especially because these were ratios of data probabilities. They weren't given no. the probability that John is guilty. No. Right? They weren't. They weren't asked to say, "Does it have to be 99 percent or 99.99 percent no, or no, what?" No. So if if you converted directly to probabilities, I suspect people would find that more intuitive. Yeah. But if you just give them a ratio of a base factor, mm. they found that a little tricky. Yeah. 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 So that was one thing I was well, working it's on. Fascinating. It's yeah. Fascinating. We, is there already a? Is it submitted or is it published? It is, is it, uh, on. A preprint. It is on my co-author's desk to give feedback, and then it will be submitted fairly soon. Okay. Um, it's basically written. We, if we need to tidy things up. But there will be. There will soon be a preprint. Yeah. Ah, great. We will yeah. share that then. If it's there. If it's there by the, the time this comes out, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Hey, so uh, thanks for telling us about it. The final topic, I just wanted to uh, make a little um, sneak preview uh, announcement -y thingy about the people we are still going to, we have interviewed, and we still right. are going to launch on podcast interviews. Right. Do you have the list there? Yes, you do. I have it. So uh, in what is what in what order are we going to get? So the next episode after this one will be Zoltan Dinesh. Oh, yes. That was the interview in, in Brighton or the yes. environment of Brighton. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, that was a really nice interview, I remember. I remember finding Zoltan to be a lovely fellow. Yes, um, definitely. And that was actually a long time ago now. Yeah, it is. We recorded that last summer. We have summer. a backlog. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, all the other ones from that summer are, are out now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what. But it, he, uh, he's a very um, erudite, or you know, how do you pronounce that? Erudite. Uh, yeah. Guy, and uh, I think what he said is still completely valid now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's still topical. Really, still topical, today. and it was a very, yeah. very good interview. Yeah. So, and then what do we have? And then we have Jeff Rauder. Oh yes, Jeff. Jeff. Uh, that we did them in Florida, right? In the hotel. Yeah. So the next, the last three are we oh, were at the at the, the robust science workshop yeah. in Florida. That was fun. And and Jeff was uh, he had a lot to say. Yeah, Jeff yeah. has uh, always has a lot to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. and 
I find his what he does have to say very intriguing it's or thought provoking and yeah, absolutely uh, there's yeah. uh, lots there to think about yeah um so i'm excited for that one uh then after that is richard mori which i found out during that interview uh with jeff actually that richard was jeff's student yeah i didn't know that he did his phd with him at missouri exactly so yeah. and that was a really uh it was a really inspiring interview i thought yeah and, and it was interesting to hear how richard sort of discovered that statistics was fascinating to him. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Not just he was a statistician who found Bayesian statistics, but it no the the feeling that like wow you can actually do things with statistics and learn about the world even when it's there's randomness and uncertainty. Yeah, um, yeah. It was a really nice. Uh, I thought it was a very good conversation. Also the discussion I thought was very high level. Yeah, um, and then our final one so far is Michael Lee. Yes. Yes. who has made a uh, few sort of cameo uh, points on this podcast before where people mention him and say Mm -hmm. he maybe taught them their first Bayesian uh, course or... Uh, yeah, he's the he's the master schemer. He's behind the scene. Uh, yeah, the, he's, the he's the puppet. Uh, the cause the cause of a lot of disturbances yeah. and, and changed careers and yeah uh, yeah. I remember how we inspired EJ to start doing Bayesian modeling. Yeah, by just online churn- turning what EJ said into a model. Yeah, very good story by EJ. I'm we I think we talked about that with Michael as well. Yes, I think we did. Yeah, and it's always um, uh, extremely inspiring and funny. Yeah. To talk to. Yeah, he's a funny guy. He is. Yeah. Um, yes. So I'm really looking forward to these. It's it's like uh, almost like we're starting season two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like because uh, yeah. we fin- we pushed all the other ones out in the by the early summer right. for the last season. Last season, so quote unquote. Season two. Season two. The base um, factor. Season season two. Yeah. Now on HBO. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we keep up video recording like we're doing here, then. Oh uh, yeah, it's not very. If we end up video. using it. Yeah. yeah, we should do something crazy or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, that uh, I think uh, that was good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's and nice uh, to catch up. Yeah. Um, it's nice to do another uh, one-on-one recording with you. Right. Ever since the first one. Yeah, the first yeah. one was also. So, yeah, keep st- stay stay tuned, as they say. Yeah, and, uh, and follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, and we'll post the links that yeah. we mentioned, if any. Yes, there were a few. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's it. Okay. You can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts High Lab website at sites.tufts.edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Vosse for creating the music for this podcast.